From PRX's Radiotopia, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Welcome to episode four of the summer season, a season brought to you exclusively by Squarespace, your all-in-one website-making platform. They have everything you need to make a great site. And once you've done it, once you're leaning back in your chair, nodding to yourself and thinking, I did that, that's a beautiful website. Check me out. You can kind of check out because Squarespace will keep your site running stably and smoothly and securely. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code MEMORY to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com. Use offer code MEMORY. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Squarespace, helping us polish up the suits of armor that line the hallways to the fourth floor of the East Wing here at the Palace. Which is super helpful because it allows me to focus on pulling together my live shows uh, coming up in August in Portland and Seattle and in September in Los Angeles. Check out TheMemoryPalace.us for dates and tickets and stuff. And now check out episode 69. Charlie, God of Rain. This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The thin man on the ladder was 28, though his thinning hair made him look older. So did his suit, so out of place on this ladder in the middle of the forest, beside a dry creek bed. From the top, two stories up, he could look south into Mexico. If he looked west, beyond the golden foothills, he could nearly see San Diego, shining at the edge of the Pacific. But he only looked up, at the perfect Southern California sky, blue and cloudless and infuriating. Because Charles Hatfield couldn't work with a cloudless sky. It was one of the first things he learned that first time in the library, sometime around 1903. Most mornings, he'd put on a suit and pack up his sample case and roll it from house to house all around Los Angeles, often walking right past no trespassing signs posted on the lawns of people sick of besuited salesmen. Because more than once, Charlie ignored one of those signs and was greeted at the door by an angry homeowner but still managed to sell him a sewing machine anyway. He was that good. He was sure he could take over the whole business one day. But he didn't want to. Sewing machines were useful. They could make and they could mend. But they couldn't make Charlie a great man. But he thought he knew what could. One day he went to the library downtown and started reading about rain, of the ancients and their rain gods, of the tribes of the Americas with their chants and their dances and he read recent works from the finest minds in the field of pluviculture. For the rainmaking literature was substantial, if not always substantive. 19th century scientists picked up on a theory first posited after the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. It claimed that the torrential rains that changed the course of that battle were caused by the battle itself. Some combination of sound waves and smoke from cannons somehow shook precipitation from the clouds like fruit from a branch. The scientists had seen it again in 1815 in the waterlogged fields of Waterloo. Some meteorologists speculated that God, that nature, had built a firefighting mechanism into fire itself, that the smoke from a burning forest or prairie or Chicago was there to facilitate its own demise. Congress invested $20,000 into pluvicultural experiments in 1891, hoping to find a rainmaking method that could sate thirsty farmlands. But the massive explosions that shook the Texas prairies that summer only served to terrorize jackrabbits and to disprove the notion that smoke and sound could soak the ground. But still, 
there was a steady stream of scientists who sought steady streams. And there were con men who promised them, who'd walk into drought-stricken towns, take desperate people's money, and then hope that rain came, or at least a midnight train that could get them out of town before the mob did. But despite many high-profile failures, and despite the ill repute that had befallen the fallible men who claimed godlike powers, Charlie Hatfield was undeterred. He found hope in these books, times when the clouds did break, times when the rainmaker waved from the window of the morning train to the grateful farm folk and looked out upon swollen rivers while he patted his swollen wallet. There was something in there, some work still to be done, formulas to tweak, methods to refine. And in time, he developed his own technique. And in time, he found he could sell more than sewing machines. He could sell salvation. For 50 bucks a pop, he brought rain to L.A. farmers. Or at least they thought he did. His method was the same each time out, though its details were shrouded in secrecy. He and his teenage brother Paul would pick some somehow perfect spot out in the middle of nowhere and build a tower, 20, 30 feet high. A simple thing, straight boards and topped with a box open to the air. Charlie would put on a suit, always with a suit, and climb the ladder and mix chemicals in the box and wait while those chemicals evaporated and while their invisible molecules did invisible things in the clouds and called down the rain. He didn't say who was making rain. He couldn't make clouds from scratch. But if there were clouds, he could attract rain. He could coax it out. He wasn't a rainmaker. He was a moisture accelerator, he'd say. And if you were a farmer whose crop was failing, that was a distinction without a difference. In one winter, farmers lined up with their $50. It was the third dry January in a row. The drought was so bad that the Catholic diocese and prominent Protestant ministers were calling on their parishioners to pray and ask God to turn on the heavenly tap. That same day, Charlie was up in his ladder. The weather report spoke of a storm up north, but there was no way it was going to dip down into Los Angeles. But it did anyway. A reporter from the LA Times went looking for a quote from Charlie, and he knocked on the door of the moisture accelerator's mother's home in Inglewood, and she gave him a good one. She said Charlie had been working hard, studying the weather, making his potions, been at it for years with no help, no acclaim, and now he'd made good. The people's prayers were answered by her son. The rain didn't make it to San Diego. There was a drought there, too. Couldn't have just kept going an extra hundred miles or so. Of course not. Frickin' L.A. I think it's fair to say that San Diego had a bit of an inferiority complex back then. A decade into the new century, it had only a tenth of the population of either Los Angeles or San Francisco. It hardly seemed right. It was just as beautiful as those cities, its climate even more temperate. It had a rich and fascinating history. It was the terminus of a vital railway line. But it was no L.A., no San Francisco. And that may have been on the mind of city councilman Don Stewart after reading about the rain and the rainmaker in the morning paper. But when someone suggested that San Diego could have rain too, they just needed to hire this Charlie Hatfield. Stewart scoffed. He was a Navy man. He had studied the weather. He had seen sudden squalls toss ships and sails with no warning at all. No, rain was God's domain. 
there was no way he had just ceded dominion over the weather to some sewing machine salesman. And besides, San Diego had a different plan to be just as good as L.A. and take its rightful place alongside the great cities of the world. The Panama, California Exposition, the World's Fair of 1915, celebrated the opening of the Panama Canal and the puncturing of the isthmus that would let the waters of the Atlantic and the Pacific intermingle and usher in an era of unlimited possibility for San Diego. Their city was now the first port of call in the United States for ships coming through the canal. Surely this was San Diego's time. And as Don Stewart and his colleagues on the San Diego City Council strolled the fair's impeccably planned gardens, admired its fine pavilions, they felt rightly proud. It was quite a thing they'd pulled off. People had told them it was impossible. A city of 35,000 citizens holding a World's Fair? They said no one would come. No countries would participate. But yet here they were. Here was Franklin Roosevelt, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, announcing that San Diego would be the new American home of the Pacific Fleet. Here was a miniature city on a hill, overlooking a humble downtown that soon would be a gleaming metropolis. And from that hill they could look to the harbor and imagine all the new vessels dropping anchor. They could look out to the hills, unfurling in all directions, and picture little plots of land for the workers who would build this great city and see the fertile fields that would feed them. Yet those fields were so dry, the drought hadn't let up. And Don Stewart and his fellow city councilors knew that the one thing that could hold them back, the one thing that could keep San Diego from becoming the greatest city of the West, was water. Because they knew their reservoirs were half of where they should be. They heard daily from their farmers who were staring down the barrel of yet another bad year. But what could they do? Rain was God's domain. Don Stewart had said so back when the fair was but a dream they all shared. But that dream had come true. They hadn't prayed for it. They built it. They planned it. They made it happen. And here they were, strolling through its gardens, admiring its fine pavilions. Here were wonders, new technologies from around the world. Here was Thomas Edison and Henry Ford talking about the future. And think what they'd seen in their own lifetimes. Moving pictures, phonographs, trains and planes, Model Ts, medical innovations. Over and over, they had seen modern men do the work of gods. So why not the rain? Screw it, Don Stewart said, in his way, some 1950 anyway. Bring us Charlie Hatfield. The thin man in the suit climbed the ladder. From up there, two stories above the forest floor, he could see the parched hills rolling out to the horizon, could see Cottonwood Creek limping its way into Mexico to the Tijuana River, slow and low beneath its banks. And Charlie Hatfield could look down at the half-filled reservoir. He had promised the city council that he would fill it in one year. It would take 40 inches of rain. The year before, it had rained 10. But if he could give them that rain, they would give him $10,000. But there was much work to do. He had been out there climbing this ladder for a few weeks under clear, cruel blue skies. Now he could see clouds, a few, coming in off the Pacific. He called down to Paul, his brother, at the base of the structure, who fetched buckets of chemicals, handed them up the ladder, and Charlie poured them into the wooden box that topped the tower, stirred them together, and waited. 
More clouds the next day. More trips up the ladder. More waiting. Watching the skies as they darkened. As the unseen molecules formed unseen bonds, made unheard entreaties to the rain. And then it fell. The thin man laughed. Or cheered or slapped his little brother in the back. Or didn't. Just nodded, satisfied, as there was never any doubt. It rained for three days off and on, the first precipitation in months. In San Diego at City Hall, in the farmhouses that Charlie Hatfield could see dotting the hills that rolled out to the horizon, men laughed, or cheered, or shrugged their shoulders. What's a few days rain? You don't need a rainmaker to get a little rain in January. And back up the ladder went the thin man in the suit. And up went the buckets. And up went the molecules. And down came the rain. And down. And down. And down came the rain. Up rose the marina reservoir. And Cottonwood Creek. Up and up and up over their banks. Flooding the fields. Washing out roads. Sweeping through canyons. Shattering bridges. Bursting through dams. Sending a 20-foot wall of water roaring across the valley taking farmers and fathers and mothers and children away from the grasping hands of their loved ones. When the rain stopped, Don Stewart took a small boat through the center of his city on the waters that had risen like the metropolis of his dreams. It out on the bay, where the retaining wall of an inland dam now crumbled in the sea, and where Japanese fishermen, recent immigrants to this city of the future, searched the water for their dead. Twenty people had been killed. At least the ones we know about. At least the ones with friends and families around to search for them in vain. We don't know how many migrant workers, how many travelers caught on the wrong road at the wrong time were lost and unclaimed, simply because there was too much rain. The other losses were tallied. Between the damage that would need to be repaired and the damages sought by angry citizens, San Diego was on the hook for at least three and a half million dollars. And for Charlie's ten grand. But like the government of Hamlin before them, Don Stewart and his fellow city councilmen decided not to pay the magical man they'd hired to save them. Because yes, Charlie had played his pipe and gotten rid of the rats. But he'd already taken the children too. What more do they have to lose? But Charlie insisted. They had asked for rain. He had brought them rain. This was proof of his methods. This was proof of his greatness. But the council was weary. And wiser, perhaps, after all this rain. And had bigger concerns than one man with a complaint. So they offered him a deal. He could have his $10,000. All he had to do was say that he was the one who had caused all this rain. People were out there cursing God. Maybe they would want to know that someone else was responsible. Charlie left without his check. 